Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I was thinking about what to teach, and you guys are going to have to just be at my mercy. But I was talking with a few of you, and some of you said, well, why don't you talk about your reflections from what you learned last week at the Together for the Gospel. I've never done this before. I go every other year. I've gone for the past 10 years to the Together for the Gospel conference, and you, you, you hear preachers like David Platt and John Piper and Matt Chandler and um, who else was there, John MacArthur, all these great preachers. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like church camp for um, adult pastors, so it's kind of, it's kind of fun. And so um, really what I want to do is th- there were a lot of things that I learned, um, but the theme this year, and I've, I still have got my little bracelet. You couldn't get anywhere without your protest bracelet. But the whole theme was the Protestant Reformation, and because um, this, well, 1517, so next October, October 31st, 1517, it will be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. But really, there were some events that led up to the Protestant Reformation even before that. So the conference was really talking about, historically, what can we learn from the Protestant Reformers? And then how is that going to help us today in an age where we're going to have to stand up for our faith? And it talked a lot about persecution, a lot about martyrs. I really encourage you. That the, I don't think they're up yet. I went earlier. All of the talks will be online on video. But the one by David Platt, he, did, he finished up the conference. That one was really powerful. Um, so watch the David Platt one. I'll kind of give you an overview of all the different ones. And, but um, the, the most encouraging one for me personally as a pastor was Mark Devers. Um, just that that's really hits, hits more pastors. Um, John Piper's was really good just on sin, the depravity of sin and the need for, for, the, for the gospel. Um, John MacArthur did a really good job. He preached an overview of the seven churches in Revelation and talked about the need for the church to repent. Before we call the rest of the world to repent, the church needs to repent and talked about that. Um, Thabiti Anabuele, he's an African-American pastor. He preached just an exposition of Romans chapter 3. And just really did a great job. Uh, Matt Chandler's was really good. His was funny. Um, his was on just how do you deal with suffering in light of God being a big God. Um, and then Kevin DeYoung's was on holiness, the need to have holiness. Um, David Platt's was really on um, the English reformers who died, um, were martyred, and why were they martyred, and what can we learn from that? So there, and there were a bunch of other things you can, you can go back and, and listen to. But basically... Um, so what I want to do tonight is this is going to be different than maybe any class you've ever had because it's not going to be so much a Bible study as it's going to be a weaving of history and Bible together with a bunch of themes, okay? So you have to bear with me the next three weeks. This is kind of what we're doing, okay? So um, the Protestant Reformation gave us five great statements. And the reason I'm doing this, guys, is one thing I noticed as I was sitting there in these talks and, and, and going through all this I've been through seminary, and I actually teach church history at Colorado um, CCU at Colorado Christian University. And so I know a lot of these names, a lot of these events, a lot of these people. But your average church person, when some of these people are preaching, you may be sitting there being like, who's Pelagius and what, what was, who's Charles V? And so I'm thinking that there is 
a need not for you to be experts in church history, but for you to know a lot of the major names and events in church history and why we believe what we believe now and how it's been um, espoused over the past 2,000 years. Um, Because we've had 2,000 years of church history, and we can learn a lot from the, the people that have gone behind us, especially as we're going into, I think we're going into a new phase of history. Would you guys agree with me that we're kind of going into a new phase where, let's just use the word Christendom, where Christianity or, or, or as an official belief system is being marginalized and pushed to the edges and not being accepted in our culture. So we as a church and we as individual Christians are going to have to figure out how do we stand for truth in the midst of a culture that doesn't want to hear it. And I think you can learn a lot from, from church history. So the the Protestant Reformation gave us what are called the five solas. And I think every, every single one of us really, if you don't know the Latin one, you at least need to know what the five solas are. And this is really what the heartbeat of the excuse me, the Protestant Reformation was all about, was getting back to, there was a big, um, I don't know if this works. One of, the, one of the cries of the Reformation was ad fontes, which is Latin for back to the sources. Now, what do you think back to the sources meant? What was going on in the Roman Catholic Church? they were creating a whole system of belief that was getting so far away from what? The original Bible, the sources. And so the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation was, let's get back, let's get back to the Greek, let's get back to the Hebrew, let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to the basics where we can learn our theology, not from the Roman Catholic Church or the teaching of the magisterium or the popes. Let's go back to the sources. Let's go back to the original writings. And so there was a big push. And so here's the five solas. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Faith alone, sola fide. Grace alone, sola gratia. Christ alone, solus Christus, and God's glory alone, soli Dea Gloria. And the Roman Catholic Church believed in all five of those, but they did not believe in those with the word alone next to them. You talk to people today, and they will say, oh yeah, I believe the Scripture, but do you believe the Scripture alone is the only source? I believe in faith but do you believe in faith alone or do you add works to it? I believe in grace, but do you believe in grace alone where you don't have to do the sacraments to somehow get that grace? Do you believe in Christ alone? Well, I believe Christ is one of many ways of salvation, but not Christ alone. And then God's glory alone. And so really what set the Protestant Reformation was that the Catholic Church believed those things. It just it wasn't alone. It was the Roman Catholic Church stood as an authority right next to all those. So you had Scripture and the authority of the church and the sacraments and all this kind of stuff. Okay? So I believe the need for the Reformation is not over. And this is not an anti-Catholic talk. Okay? So we're not here to... What I'm saying is that we are in an age where we need to always be getting back to the sources and we need to figure out how we as Christians and how we as a church are going to stand strong on the gospel. Every generation, there's, there's a fear that in every generation we're going to lose the gospel. Our kids right now that are growing up in this church, they're going to be the torchbearers of the next generation. Are they getting the gospel? Are we giving them the gospel? Um, and so it was very interesting. In 1543, uh, John Calvin, one of the 
one of the great Protestant reformers. You've got Martin Luther, you've got Zwingli, you've got Bootser, you've got um, Theodore Beza, Melanchthon, all these men. Um, but Calvin's prime, you know, Calvin and Luther are the top two. But he wrote a letter to Emperor Charles V. Now, if you know anything about history, this was the time of the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, So you had emperors over Europe that were in cahoots with the Pope. So basically you had a state church all throughout Europe. And so they had a meeting in a, in a town in Germany called Spires. It was really called the Diet of Spires. Not like when we say a diet, we, like I'm going to go on a diet. If you've heard of the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms, it's, it's a meeting. That's where Martin Luther had his famous, you know, I will not recant. So a diet was not like a thing we lose weight. A diet was a big meeting. So at the Diet of Spires, they had this meeting where they were basically going to stamp out the Protestant church. And John Calvin was so concerned that he wrote a letter to the emperor. Okay, so he wrote a letter to the emperor. And it was called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. Now, you can go online and look at this. And if you print it out, it's 60 pages. That's a long letter. But what he has done in this letter is he laid out the central issues of why the Protestant Reformation was necessary. Because what's going on in Europe all this time? What's all this Reformation? Why are we getting back to the Bible? What's, what's all this issue of, of getting back and, and wanting the people in, the, in their own language to read the Scriptures? What's this all about? And so John Calvin wrote the necessity of reforming the church to the emperor to say, listen, I'm going to lay out for you what the Protestant Reformation is all about. Okay. Not yet. Um, that, that comes a little bit later um, in, in England. Um, Church of England. Mm-hmm. Well, the King James Bible, 1611. So it's more in the late 1500s when you've got like William Tyndale and, and things like that, and then like the Great Bible and things like that. I've got an actual lecture that I can do. Maybe I can bring it in next week. I've got, a, I've got notes on how we got our Bible in the, in the, in the um, history of the translation of the English Bible and how it came to be where, where we got it, I can bring that in as part of what we talk about. So I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but um, Beza, Theodora Beza, was Calvin's student who kind of took over after he died. He said this about this letter. He said, I know not if any writing on the subject more nervous or solid has been published in our age. And so it was a big deal. So what were the five, what were the issues that John Calvin said? And the reason I'm telling you the, the four issues that John Calvin said were important, because I want to ask you, do you think these are important today? When you're talking about what we are to be as a church, how we hold fast to the gospel, how we get back to the sources, how we hold fast to the scriptures, I want you to see if these are any different today than what he argued almost 500 years ago. Okay, 1543. So less, you know, less than 500 years ago, or more, yeah. So anyway, here's the, the issues. So if we are going to be a, a reforming church that is in the stream of the Protestant Reformation in the 21st century, what were these four issues that Calvin said? These are the, these are the central issues of the Protestant Reformation. Let me ask you if these are central issues today. The first thing he said, and this is what Luther also said too, both reformers, almost all the reformers said it starts with this one issue, worship. Idolatry is always a fundamental problem of the human heart, and we need to make sure that our life together as a church has worship that is word-saturated. 
Would you agree with that, that that's a need? That the Word is central to everything that we do? Okay, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura says, or the, the, the teaching is that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So here's my question for you today. Do we take seriously not only the inspiration and authority of Scripture, but do we hold to the sufficiency of Scripture, especially in matters of public worship? Now, let me ask you a question. What does the sufficiency of Scripture mean? It's all you need for what? It's the one and only true uh, word of God. Okay. And so if it is, and it's only sufficient, what should it do? It should sustain you for the work. Okay, so word sustain. What else should it do? I'm, looking at, I'm, I'm thinking about some words here. Maybe you're trying to read my mind. I don't know. <laughs> it should teach. I'm going even stronger here. Let me just put these two words. It should define and dictate everything that we do in our lives and as our church. It should define and dictate. If something defines, what does that mean? Describes it, sets the boundaries. If something dictates, what does that mean? tells you what to do okay so my question is not necessarily a manual but let's just look at the evangelical landscape today are we seeing churches and christians living by the sufficiency of scripture no now okay <laughs> there's, there's no okay i would agree with you but let me just ask this you go up to most christians today and ask them this question do you believe the bible what are they going to say a second question, do you believe the Bible is inspired of God? Yes. Do you believe the Bible is inerrant and doesn't have any errors? No. Well, okay, we're getting a little bit, okay. <laughs> do you think the Bible is authoritative? Now you're getting a little personal. It, so people will give lip service to the nature of the Bible. When it comes down to practice and to lifestyle, are we living under the authority of the Holy Scriptures to define and dictate how we live? And I'm hearing you guys saying... I think people are starting to actually, I mean, go away from that. People are starting to say that, you know, this is a, a book that worked way back then. And, I mean, we're starting to hear more yeah. and more of that, that, well, that worked then, but of course it doesn't apply doesn't to us right now. And this is coming not from non-believers, it's coming it's from... Coming from, from, from people that are saying they're mm -hmm. believers. So Self-identifying Christians. Yes. Last, last week I started off my uh, teaching with a, a conversation I had with Adam. And so I was, he, I've been talking to him for a while, and so I finally asked him, so you think you will go to heaven? He said, yes. And I said, how do you know? Because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And, I, and I've never got that clear of an answer yet. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And then he goes, then while we're talking, he starts to say, well, but it's really hard to convince other people about that because, you know, the Bible is really irrelevant today. And, and, and he said, um, he's you know, it, it's not, um, you know, it was written back then. And so that doesn't, that doesn't convey to our culture. And that's what inspired what I was teaching last yeah. week as it is. And he goes, then you have the Old Testament. God was judgmental. But in reality, God, God just wanted his people to be with him and, and for them to be Holy. his people and him yeah. to be their God. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. 
What's the alternative for the Christian? If the Bible's archaic and the Bible doesn't matter anymore, what's, what's their, what are they offering as an alternative? Myself, what I think, my own standard. Okay, it's a house of cards. When, this, when the Bible falls, everything else falls. So that's why the Reformers said, number one, it gets back to worship, which we understand comes from the sufficiency and authority of the Scriptures. Well, I'm sure, sure it would. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that David Platt and his, I went to his breakout session too because they had different breakouts and it was a really good um, breakout. I think it, the audio may be up on that, but his whole thing was how do you as a pastor mobilize your church for global missions, which is really what we're about. And he had 10 things and he was, it was supposed to be an hour, and he got like he got past point number one in like thirty minutes, and I'm like, this is not gonna, we're not gonna get this done in an hour. So he's like rushing through the last last time. He's like, I wish I had more to say. Like we wish you did too, but but his first point was um, the the biggest thing that you can do as a church to help people see global missions is important is to preach a God centered God. A God centered God. Now that may sound weird. But he says, if we don't talk about worship and the glory of God and the centrality of God and worship in the church, then why that, that fuels everything we do is a big view of God and, and worship. So the reformers would say, Calvin, Luther, especially both of them in different ways, but especially Calvin would say the number one thing that the Reformation was all about. He's talking to Charles V, the emperor, and by extension, the pope, the two top guys in the world at that time, it boils down to worship. And basically what he was saying, he was laying the gauntlet down saying, you guys aren't doing true worship. You're worshiping idols, you're worshiping icons, and you've lost the authority of Scripture. Now, that's a pretty big gauntlet to throw down from the very beginning. Okay? Yeah, exactly. The second thing that Calvin said that we have to understand is important with the Reformation. Number two, besides worship being informed by the authority of Scripture, is salvation. He said, this is the crux of the Protestant Reformation, is how a person saved. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And so what I want to do is I want us to turn to Romans chapter 3. And I want us to just, and the question I'm saying is, these issues have always been around. So 500 years ago when the Protestant Reformation was going, these were important issues, but these are important issues today. So let me just ask you so far, do you think worship and the authority of the Scripture is important today? That we get that right? Do you think salvation is important that we get that right? Okay, so let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And, and I would say that this is probably, and most scholars and most Bible teachers would say this is the most important paragraph in the New Testament. That's a pretty strong statement in the whole New Testament. That's what, almost, that's what a lot of commentators, a lot of people, and, and I, would, I don't know if you can actually quantify it and say it's the greatest, but it's, it's up there as, as one of the, 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 probably the most important part of Romans, I would say. So Romans chapter 3 
21 through 26. Let's read this together. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let's just talk a little bit about this passage of Scripture. God's righteousness, very in verse 21, has been manifested. The Old Testament pointed to it. But the righteousness that we're talking about, how a person... So what's the most fundamental question that any person can ask? How can I be right with the Holy God? How can I have a right standing? How can I be accepted? How can I be forgiven by a holy God who is righteous? How can I have that righteousness? And Paul answers it. He says, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see anything there about anything added on top of faith? That's where the faith alone comes. This is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. If you want to know where grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone comes, you look at this passage of Scripture and it teaches it very clearly. It is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so there's a problem. Verse 23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the major problem that every single one of us has is that we are sinners by nature and by action. We fall short of God's glory. We are in desperate need of salvation. We're in desperate need of forgiveness. How does that come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. You ever had somebody ask that to you before? That's it? Like just believing in Jesus is it? What do you tell them? Uh, yeah. So I don't have to do anything? No. You mean I don't have to like go to church? I don't have to give tithes and offerings? I don't have to go see my priest? I don't have to, you know, stack grease BBs and dance on my head and gargle peanut butter and sing the national anthem backwards or anything? I don't have to do that? No. It's faith alone in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to flesh out what this faith, when we have faith in Christ, he's going to talk about what it what it happens to us. He's going to give three metaphors to describe our salvation. And they all come from different parts of, different walks of life. So the first thing he says there is justified. You see that verse 24? We are justified by His grace as a gift. Justified. One of the key terms that you all need to know, and this is a big term, but I'm teaching you a big word, it's imputation. <gasps> not amputation, like my arms are getting cut off. Let me explain it. And I've explained this numerous times. You probably, some of you could probably stand up here and give this illustration. I've given it so many times. Okay? And I will draw it on, a, on the board here. Okay? So here's, here's your life, and here's Jesus' life. 
and pretend like your life and Jesus' life are a bank account. Okay? And so God, as the judge, He's going to look down upon your life of sin. And as the judge, what's He going to see in your life? He's going to see a negative, and we'll just use the word gazillion, He's going to see a negative gazillion balance of sin. He's going to see this huge debt. And so when God, the judge, looks down upon your life and sees this negative sin debt, the only thing he can pronounce upon your life is guilty. You are guilty. And if you're guilty, what do you deserve? Death, wrath, hell. Okay. Can you do anything to get yourself out of debt? No. Okay. The Bible says it's by faith alone. So when you believe... In Jesus, okay, so by faith, when you trust, when you, when you believe, something happens. There's an imputation. If you don't like the word imputed, you can use the word reckoned. You can use the word credited, debited, accounted, whatever accounting term you want to use. But all of that debt goes out of your account and it goes to Jesus. And now Jesus bears all of your sin. Your sin is credited or reckoned or imputed to Christ. So now Christ is your sin bearer. What's your balance now? You're zero. Now, that's good. You've got now the whole. But is that, what do you need to get into heaven? What do you need to be accepted? You need a positive balance. Can you create that positive balance? No. So by faith, there's a double imputation. What comes back to you by faith I'll write faith again. What comes back to you is the perfect record or the perfect righteousness of Christ gets credited back to you. So in the faith transaction, the great exchange is what it's called. When you trust in Christ for salvation, your sin debt goes out of your account. It's credited to Christ. His perfect record of righteousness is credited to you. So now what is your record? Is it debt? Is it zero? What's your record now? It's Christ. Christ's perfection, Christ's life. Now, when God the judge looks down upon your life now because of faith, what can he make? What pronouncement can he make? Not guilty, accepted, forgiven. You are in a permanent state of being accepted by God. How does this happen? What's the only way? That's the only way this happens? By faith alone. Do we add anything to faith? Do we add a sacrament? Do we add even baptism? Do we add tithing and giving? Do we add good works? It's trusting, believing, embracing, placing our whole faith in Christ. This, it's called, the, 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 the technical theological term, and I don't expect you to remember this, it's called double imputation. Double imputation. Your sin is imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to you. We don't use the word imputed anymore. We use more, like when you go to the bank, they don't say, well, let me impute. When you go to the bank, you say, I'd like to impute my paycheck into my, when you put a, when you, when you like cash your check or deposit, when you deposit your check, do you go to the teller and say, hey, I'd like to impute this into my account? What do you say? I'd like to deposit it. Okay. Some of you, do some of you guys get direct deposit from your paycheck? Okay. That's a direct deposit that comes into your account. Okay. 
That's what happens. The word justification is a legal term and it's a banking and accounting term that really means debits and credits. And so it's this whole idea of your standing before God. And so what the Protestant reformers were saying is, listen, we've got to get back to this truth of imputed righteousness that comes through justification, that comes through faith in Christ alone. So that's the first image that Paul uses there. You see it right there in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. So it's all by grace. It's faith alone, grace alone. Now, what's the second image he uses? The redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is from the the word redeem or ransom. It's a slave market term in that culture. It means to buy out of slavery. So let's say Ron's a slave, and I go to Ron, and I say, Ron, I'm going to buy you out of slavery. Not because you deserve it, because actually you're, 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 not, you're, not, you're not a very good guy, Ron, but I'm going to, no, I'm just joking with you, but I'm going to buy you out of slavery. So I go to Kathy, <laughs> your mom, and say, Kathy, you're the slave owner. I'm going to buy Ron out of slavery. And she's like, okay, but you've got to pay me the ransom price. So I say, okay, what, what's the agreement? We're on the slave market here. 50 shekels. Okay, I'll pay you 50 shekels. Okay, so I pay you 50 shekels. Now Ron's been released to me, and now he's my slave. Okay. The difference in the spiritual realm is this. All of us are in bondage to sin, and Christ buys us out of that slavery, but does he buy us to become a slave or a child? both actually because we're actually to be a slave of but he adopts us into his family so this whole idea in salvation is not only do we have the perfect record of christ but we've been purchased out of the bondage of sin by christ and he owns us now so it's a purchasing term okay so we've got a a legal term a purchasing term and then we've got the big oh go ahead So I think that there's probably a little bit more, you know, we are slaves. We yeah. are going to be a slave to Christ. But it, right. your master's not going to be harsh with you, and your right. master loves you, and, right. and he treats you, um, you know, with joy. And then there's also that picture of when you had a servant, if he wanted to stay with you um, after his... Right, seven years. Yeah, after his time was up, you could you could hammer his ear, ear to the uh, door with an awl. Yeah. And then he's your servant forever, yeah. you know, and that's that, that mark where you yeah. put that. So I think that sometimes that, that idea of us being a slave, we don't like that right. as free Americans. And right. we fought for our freedom, but in reality, that's what we right. are. We're servants. Right. We're slaves and sons. Yeah. We're simultaneously, and we don't, slavery has a lot of baggage in our culture because of what that term connotates. Yeah. But servant's probably a better, a better term. So justification, legal term. Redemption, marketplace term. Then we've got propitiation, which is more of a sacrificial term related almost to the Day of Atonement and some of the propitiatory sacrifices that look like the Old Testament. 
propitiation, and you see that there in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means to turn aside God's wrath. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a sacrificial substitute. He died as a sacrificial lamb, taking the justice, taking the punishment, taking all of the, um, the justice and punishment that we deserve, the penalty that we deserved in his body, in our place, turning aside all of that justice, all of that wrath that should have come upon us because of our sin. Okay? So the two big issues so far that the Reformers said we got to get back to is worship, being informed by the sufficiency of Scripture, then number two, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here's my question. Now that you know what this term means, I can ask you the question. How does a correct view of imputed righteousness and justification by faith alone produce assurance of our salvation? What is the assurance of our salvation? The question is not, how do I get saved? That's not the assurance question. The assurance question is, how do I know I'm saved? Here's the big issue with the, with the Protestant Reformation. The major objection, if you look at all the major objections that happened during the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation, there was a lot of them. The authority of Scripture, the nature of saving faith, the sacraments, all that stuff. But here's the big issue that came down time and time again. The major objection to the Protestant Reformation by the RCCs, the Roman Catholic Church, was that we could have assurance of salvation and that we could rest in the truth that we're not guilty before God in a permanent state of being accepted on account of Christ. Roman Catholic Church says you can't know that. How dare you say that you can have assurance of salvation? Nobody can have assurance of salvation. That's why you go to do the sacraments. Because the sacraments keep you in that state. Have I talked about the gas tank view of the sacraments before? Some of you may have never heard that. Okay, here's the sacramental system in the Roman Catholic Church. When you're born as a baby... You inherit sin from Adam the same way we believe. So you've got original sin. You've got to have that sin paid for or covered. So you're baptized as a baby and it covers your original sin. But then as you start living life, you start sinning. So think about this. At your baptism as a baby, your gas tank is full with grace. Okay? The Roman Catholic view. Yeah, your gas tank's full of grace with the Roman Catholic view. As you keep living life and sinning and committing venial sins and mortal sins, what happens to your what happens to the gas tank? Keeps going down with grace, with grace. What happens if you die on empty? <laughs> you, you go to purgatory, <laughs> maybe even hell. So you've always got to keep your gas tank full. So how do you keep your gas tank full in the Roman Catholic Church? The sacraments. The, you go do the sacraments to get your gas tank back up. So, I, you know, I go say a few Hail Marys. Okay, my tank's a little bit higher. I go do the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, it's a little bit higher. I, I go talk to a priest, do some confessions, it gets a little higher. Oh, I've sinned, it goes down. So you're always living in a state of flux of not knowing if you're accepted or if, you're, if you've done enough, if you've done enough to please God. Do you have enough grace? And so you're living a life of not ever being sure that you're saved. And the Roman Catholic Church says, how dare you Protestants say you can have assurance of salvation? Nobody can be sure. What's our answer to that? What's your answer? That's an important question. How do you know for sure you're saved? Okay, we're told the Bible, you gave a scripture, 1 John 5, 9, I write these. Is that right? 
I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. It's 1 John 5, 4? Or is it 1 John? Maybe 1 John 5, 9. It's in 1 John 5, I know that. Let's look it up. You know that. You're close to the address. You're on the same street. Let's see if we're... Sick, uh, fifth, 13, fifth, 13. First John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So how do you know that you have eternal life? There's a couple of, there's a couple of ways that you know. Number one, the Bible, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible. I mean, the Bible tells us that if you have trusted Christ alone for salvation, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can go on the authority of the Bible that if you have done that, if you've trusted Christ alone, you are saved. Now, you also know that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you, and you begin to have a new life where your life demonstrates fruit. So you can also know you're a Christian by the, the fruit. But First John... The book of 1 John gives three tests for how you know you're saved. Let me give you the three tests. A couple of years ago when we did first, when we were going through the New Testament overview and we, we did the book of 1 John, I, I dealt with this. But look, this is not in your notes, but it just came up to me and popped in my mind. So if you go back and read 1 John, 1 John, if I ever preach this, I'm, I don't know if I'd preach it verse by verse because it's more thematic. Like it's got, the, like you read it, like we just read that. And I think that's John's point. There's, Repeated themes, but there's three tests of assurance in First John. The first test is what we would call the theological or the doctrinal. Now, we're not going to have time to go look at this, but all throughout First John, he's basically saying, do you believe that Jesus came in the flesh? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe, it's all like, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you have, do you have the right doctrinal truth of who Jesus is, what he did? Are you believing in the right Jesus? Not the Mormon Jesus. And, and I say that honestly because you guys have come out of Mormonism. The, the Jesus that you guys used to worship is not the Jesus of the Bible. Um, so are you, are you believing the right things about Jesus? Not that you have to have all your theological ducks in a row, but do you, is your belief in Christ, the right Christ and Christ alone? The second test is the moral or, I guess, ethical. Are you living a holy life? Are you practicing righteousness? Not perfection, but is the overall attitude, overall tenor of your life one of righteous, holy, moral living according to the, the dictates of Scripture? The third test is the relational or the social. Over and over again in 1 John, he talks about loving your brother. Do you display Christian love? So these are three tests to ask yourself. Am I are, do I have solid beliefs? Am I living a solidly holy lifestyle? And I, do I have solid relationships with others where I'm practicing love? 
And John would say, these are some tests for you to go through to see if this is, if this is true about you. Okay? So, number one, worship. Number two, salvation. Number three, they said, was the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we could spend a month of Sundays talking about the differences between the Roman Catholic Church on the Lord's Supper and what the Protestant Church believes about the Lord's Supper. But the Reformers basically said, you guys, you guys have it wrong. We need to get back to a true understanding of the Lord's Supper. And then the other issue that John Calvin brought up was church government. Are we holding to a biblical polity of a plurality of elders, not just the... It was basically saying the Pope, the papacy, is not a biblical model that we need to get back to local pastors, shepherds, leading at the local level, that you don't have a universal pastor over the the whole church. That that was what John Calvin was arguing. And so obviously, you know, we're not, we as Protestants aren't going to struggle with the Pope. But the question we struggle with is this. Are we holding to a biblical polity and shepherding biblically at the local level? So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's just ask the question. So remember, this is what this is in this letter that John Calvin wrote to Pope, or not Pope, but to Charles V. These are the four things he said. This is why the Reformation's happening. We've got to get back to proper worship as informed by the Bible, proper view of salvation, proper view of Lord's Supper and Baptism, and proper view of church government. So 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, Verses 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, this is Peter, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. One of the things that Mark Dever challenged us, and I'd encourage you you to go back and look at this, but he said a lot of times we as pastors are so concerned with numbers. How are numbers? How many people we have going? And he said, really, this is the question we should be asking. Not that numbers aren't important. Should we be more concerned with the state of our church than with the number of our church? Let me give you a passage. Acts 15.36 on one of their missionary journeys. Some days, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. What's Paul saying? We planted these churches. We've been going around doing missionary work. Let's go back to those churches we planted and just see how they're doing. Our job as leaders is to see how the church is. Does Paul go, let's go back and count heads. Let's see how many attendance records they broke. He says, let's see how they are, are doing spiritually. Okay? A couple more insights. This is not in your notes, but just some further reflections. One thing Mark Dever said in his message is, pastoring is an urgent work, but not usually a quick work. It takes time. Are we willing to wait together? as a body on the promises of a faithful God, just waiting on God. Let me just give you some verses here about waiting. Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His word, I hope. Habakkuk 2, 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Why do I show you all these passages about waiting? The Bible has a lot to say about, about waiting. Our whole posture in the Christian life is waiting, isn't it? We're waiting for the return of the Lord. We're waiting on the promises. And what's the, what's the, thing, that we, what's the thing that we do believe? Do we believe God's going to come through? Yes. It's not a matter of not believing it. What's the problem? Waiting, <laughs> waiting for it to happen. Patience. And so sometimes in your individual life and sometimes in the life of a church, we have to wait. But what is our culture like? Instant, instant gratification, instant success. You know, I can't tell you how many times, and I'm, I'm sure Joe probably sees this too, on Facebook, on email, in the church mail. If you, sp- if you give me $99, I will guarantee you I can grow your church by 300 people or like 1,000 people or I can double your attendance in two weeks. And it's just like, okay, what, what are you doing to bribe people? I mean, like what's the formula? Because I look at the Bible and say, we plant, we water, God's the one that causes the growth. And sometimes out here as farmers, what do we have? I'm not a farmer, but a lot of you guys are. What do we have to do sometimes? You plant your seeds and what do you do? You wait, you water, you wait, you pray. But if the crops are going to grow, who's going to do it? God. Same thing in the life of a church. Same thing in your personal lives. You can wait, you can plant, you can water, but ultimately, you know, God's going to be the one that, that caused that to happen. And it may, it may take longer than, we, than we'd like. So, yes, Jerry. Do you believe that there's pastors in the Christian churches that think numbers are a bigger deal than most anything else? I don't want to impugn the motives of anybody, and that's a general statement, because you said, like all Christians. I can just say, in my personal experience, I have known pastors to be very number-hungry to the expense of other issues. I'll just tell you, I'll be honest with you. Maybe I shouldn't. Um, Let's pretend like I was once a youth pastor at a former church that remains nameless. And my, the pastor of this youth pastor came to him and, and for his annual review and said, you're not producing enough numbers in your youth group. That's a big issue. We're going to have to see about that. What can you start doing to generate more numbers? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm preaching the Bible. I'm discipling the kids. I'm, I'm even planning events like Dare to Share, and we're doing laser tag and all the other stuff that you do. We're just in a season right now where we don't have maybe the numbers you're expecting. But I can tell you that in my last year as youth pastor, our numbers went down. But to this day, I can look at almost all of those kids that were in that group. And the majority of them are either serving in ministry, 
walking with the Lord, plugged into their local church, did not go off the deep end in college because I was able to invest in a smaller group and do some major discipleship that I maybe not have done in a large group. But I got in trouble. I almost felt like my job was on the line because I didn't have the numbers and I needed to somehow produce them. Now, thankfully, this was about a month before I came on staff here. But I almost don't know what would have happened if I would have stayed there, if I, the numbers hadn't had an increase. Would I have been reprimanded? Would I have been written up? Would I have been, you know? I know of some pastors. I, I heard this from a guy. There was a big church in Texas that every Sunday you had to, they're, they're, they had people on staff. You had to have somebody come forward to the altar call every Sunday and get saved. That was part of your job. If you did not have somebody come forward every Sunday, you could lose your job. So they were out there beating the bushes and trying to get people to come. So yes, to answer your question, I can't make a huge statement saying it's all over the place, but I'm just saying that I've seen that. I've been on the end of that. Um, And it's tempting. Um, When numbers are great, what does it make us feel? Ooh, God must be doing something. When numbers are low, what does it make us feel? God must not be doing something. And God maybe doesn't really think about it that from that perspective. He's more looking at, are you being faithful? Are you being obedient? Are you, are you doing, are you with the flock he's given you? Are you loving and entrust, you know, with the flock that God's entrusted you, how are you loving and, and doing that? So. Also, it's an amazing part. You know, it's easy to say you have a church of 500. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's quantifiable. I mean, yeah. make it you got a guy at the door flicking up. But when you say, hey, I discipled a kid who didn't fall off the deep end when he went to college, that's kind of hard to, mm-hmm. I mean, go prove that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't, I mean, it's all anecdotal. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to go and find so Go find him. Yeah, He's living in Texas him. right now. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think that the numbers became the easy yeah. scorecard. Well, and I'm, I'm sure Joe can probably attest to this. When you're in pastor's conferences or you meet a pastor, it's not as bad as it used to be, but I remember, man, when I first started out, the first question they would ask you, how many are you running? <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Yeah. How many are you running? How many, how many are you running? Well, and I never, I never answered them. I said, well, you know, we have a little under 1,000, and you know, we're just a little under 1,000. But no, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I, I just said, I never, I never answered. Like, how many run? And I always say, I don't know. If somebody asked me to this day, how many does Emmanuel run? I mean, we get numbers every, I don't trust the number. I mean, I don't say I trust. I look out there on Sunday morning, and I can kind of get a guess, but I don't, I really don't know. I mean, I could say to people, yeah, we're between 275 and 300. But sometimes we're up to 325 and sometimes we're down to 240. just depends on if everybody showed up on one Sunday. We'd probably have a lot. But here's the pattern of church attendance in our culture. They, church growth experts will say even the most committed attenders still will only be at church a fourth, three-fourths of the time. They still are going to miss a fourth of church. And that's to travel. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it is what it is. But there's travel, there's sports, there's sicknesses, there's business trips. And so in past generations, there was a higher expectation for everybody to be in church. But now the pattern is like such, such and such family's gone this week, but next week they're here, but another family's gone. So you've, you, you kind of stay in flux on your attendance, but like on Easter... Everybody shows up. So you look at your church and say, well, I don't really know how many we have. I just know, well, you know. Well, Mark has played this morning, so we should all be here tonight. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's true, that's true. So, so 
we're, I, I, I've given Doug, I've given Doug, our worship, our worship leader, about three or four songs that I want him to introduce, but there's one that really stuck with me. We sing a lot of good songs, but um, this one is called He Will Hold Me Fast. I don't know if you've ever heard this song, but let me give you the lyrics to it. I won't sing it, but I'll just give you the lyrics to it. Um, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And here's the chorus. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Second verse. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, when He comes at last. He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. A little catchy tune, but strong about eternal security there. Okay, so here's where we're going over the next couple of weeks, whether we like it or not, or we... we Nobody may, nobody may show up next week. I don't know. We're going to actually do some church history. Um, and so some of you may be like, oh, man, not history. And some of you are like, oh, man, history. So you never win with history because there's those people like, man. So I'm trying to make this fun. You don't have to be tested on this. You, I don't expect you to remember facts and figures. I don't expect you to remember dates. I don't even expect you to remember a lot of this. But I do think you need to be exposed to it. Because there's some names that you should just know in church history. And if somebody asks you or, you know, or you come across a reading, you don't need to know all of the endless details, but there's just some names and some events that, that are just part of our church history that you just really need to know. So I'm not sure if we're going to fin- finish all this in the next three weeks, but um, <laughs> there's five major eras of church history, kind of the way I've broken them up, different textbooks and different people do them differently. But for the most part, this is the way most scholars do it. You've got the patristic age, the church fathers. That's what patristic means, the church fathers. That's from 100 to around 476 A.D. That's kind of what we're going to hopefully study tonight. Then you've got the medieval church, which is from around 476 to 1453. Um, That's a long period. We're talking almost a 1,000 years. Um, You can maybe call that the Dark Ages. (laughs) Then you had the Reformation 15, around 1453 to 1598 was the period, the pre-Reformation, conciliary movement leading up to um, like right before the Renaissance and Enlightenment and then the, um, the, main, the main like synods and councils. And so you've got the Enlightenment period, which is from 1600 to 1900, where it's post-Reformation. The church is making a lot of their creeds and confessions. Um, you've got a lot of different denominations starting. You've got Lutheran and Calvinism and Presbyterian and that's kind of and then the modern age take her you know maybe start at 1900 to present okay so we're going to look at the patristic age tonight or at least for the next half an hour um, the early church and it was really a period of definition okay because what had happened in around 8095 that's when John wrote Revelation most scholars believe and after that, he died, the last living apostle, the last scripture. So at the close of the century, around 100 A.D., 
you have no more apostles and the scripture's completed. And Paul's gone, Peter's gone, John's gone. So you have this church without any of the key leaders that were there that were either eyewitnesses of Jesus or one of his apostles. So you've got this fledgling church. And it's like, okay, we've got to define, it's a period of definition because it's like, we've got to figure out who we are. And the big issue that was going on is it, it, there was a couple of things. So here's the first thing that we need to understand. Christianity was really challenged in those early years to define itself within its relationship to the Jewish tradition from which it emerged. We looked at that at Hebrews, didn't we? Christianity was birthed out of the Jewish faith, but was it Jewish? No, it was Christian. But yet, to the world watching, it was kind of confusing. So how, how did the church kind of move out of their, their Jewish roots into the Christian church? The most significant challenge was the church's relationship to the pagan culture. What was going on during this time? Well, the Mediterranean basin, which would be, if you look at a map, so you've got, everybody knows what that is, right? Italy, Spain, Greece. It's really bad, huh? <laughs> Whatever. Okay, so Italy. So the Mediterranean basin would be like Rome, this whole area around the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the Mediterranean basin. It was it was all unified under the Roman Empire. I know. It was all under the Roman Empire. Okay, so the Roman Empire out of Rome, the boot of Rome. And so what you had was there was a unifying... Rome tried to unify the culture. Okay? Now, how do you unify a huge geographical area. You do it with two things. One is you don't let one religion have predominance. You keep people in confusion by letting all these religions be mixed together. So Rome had this laissez-faire attitude. You want to believe in Jesus? Cool. You want to believe in Zeus? Cool. You want to believe in you know, some Egyptian god? Cool. That's what the word syncretism means. Syncretistic or syncretism means mixing all religions together, kind of like a buffet. I like green beans. I like corn. I like meatloaf or whatever. I like chicken fried steak. And you put everything on your plate and you mix it all together. I like Buddha. I like Allah. I like Oprah. Whatever, you pick everything, you put it all together, and that's your, you mix it all together. And so in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire, that was what was going on. But the second thing was emperor worship. Now, most of the emperors did not literally believe they were gods. The reason they did emperor worship was to keep people in, keep people in fear. You did not want to mess with the emperor. So every year... Once a year, you'd have to go into your local temple, dip a pinch of incense on the altar, and pay allegiance to your Lord and your God, the emperor. That's going to be a problem for Christians to do that. But that's how you keep a tight rein on a huge Roman empire. You make the Roman emperor a god and keep people in fear of worshiping him. Okay? Also at the time, so not only did you have emperor worship, all these weird religions floating around, the Christian church trying to figure out how it was in relationship to Judaism, but you also had Greek philosophy or, or Hellenistic. Socrates, Plato, a lot of this Greek thought. 
And so all of this stuff was swirling around the world at that time. And so the early church is trying to figure out who they are. And then on top of all that, persecution. Now, in the first century, like around 64 AD was when the great fire broke out and Nero blamed the Christians. Um, And then when John was writing Revelation, it was under Domitian. Um, Let me give you a quote from, uh, from Tacitus. He's a historian of that time. This is what he said about Nero. This is a quote from an actual historian during that time. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed like dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. All of these aroused the mercy of the people, for it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. Paul died at the hands of Nero. Peter died at the hands of Nero. Okay. In the second century, it expanded, but it was more localized. Now, here's some famous church fathers that you probably just need to know who they are. These may be some names you're familiar with, but these are just some, some patristic church fathers. Um, Ignatius of Antioch. Okay. He was one of the first church fathers. Tradition says that he was actually a student of the Apostle John. Okay, so he was trained by John. He was called the bearer of God. He was sentenced to death by Trajan. And what was happening was he had to be transported like kind of around the area where the seven churches of Asia Minor were, but he had to be transported to Rome. And during that time, he wrote seven letters back to the churches in Asia Minor kind of those same churches that the book of Revelation had. But his letters were not scripture. They were more his letters as kind of a pastor of that area to say, listen, I'm on my way to death. You guys stay strong in the face of persecution. He was respected as a leader of Christianity, and and he died by wild animals in the Colosseum in Rome in AD 108. So about eight years after, eight to ten years after John the Apostle died. He's really the first Christian martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, died in the Colosseum. Now, docetism was a heresy, a really early heresy. Um, And so docetism, or docetism, however you want to pronounce it, this was a heresy that said that Jesus only appeared to be fully human but was not. Jesus did not have any humanity to his being. This is the whole idea that he was almost like a ghost-like person. And I'll talk about why that was important when we get to Gnosticism. But Ignatius wrote against that. And here's what he said. He says, Turn a deaf ear when anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was of the family of David, the child of Mary, who was truly born, who ate and drank, who was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and truly died. But if, as some godless men, that is, unbelievers say, he suffered in mere appearance being themselves mere appearances, then why am I in chains? Basically, he's saying, listen, those guys are whack. I wouldn't be suffering if I didn't believe Jesus came in the flesh and literally died in the flesh. And so, um, Ignatius of Antioch. Polycarp of Smyrna. You probably maybe heard of Polycarp. He was also a student of John. Um, It was about about AD 155. And um, the Roman Empire was really going through and persecuting Christians, and they wanted the Christians to pledge allegiance to um, the emperor. 
And he was an old pastor. He's about in his 80s. And he knew that he was going to get arrested. He knew it was the will of God that he was going to get arrested. So he kind of goes and hides out in a barn to hide out as an old pastor. And the guards came and said, Polycarp, we've got to take you. He's like, well, let's sit down and have some dinner first before you take me. So they sat down with him, and I think he probably shared the gospel with the guards. And so he's a big, threatening 86-year-old man. You know, he didn't really do anything. And so he comes before the tribunal, 86-year-old man, and they basically say, Polycarp, you've got to curse Christ. You've got to denounce Christ. You've got to renounce your Christianity. We'll let you live if you renounce Christ. And this is his famous quote. If you know anything, this is the famous quote from Polycarp. Um, he said, For 86 years I've served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And basically, they gave him one more chance to do that, and he did not, and he was led to be burned at the stake. And his dying words were, Lord Sovereign God, I thank you that you've deemed me worthy at this moment, so that with your martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. For that I bless you and glorify you. Amen. If you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, what's amazing is almost every time these people are being burned at the stake, they're praising God for the privilege of their salvation of being able to suffer. Okay? Now, you've probably heard of Justin Martyr, thus the martyr. Um, he was in the third century, and really his... It was probably the most severe persecution under an emperor named Diocletian this is when they were actually burning books, going from house to house, torturing Christians, um, building, destroying churches, um, and actually not just burning people at the stake, but actually adding torture to the martyrdom. And so that's how Justin Martyr was, was, was under that type of, of thing. So the, 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 in the age of definition, here's what the early church had to deal with. We've got emperor worship. We've got weird Greek philosophy. We've got a mixing of religions. We've got persecution, but we also have heresies. So the big thing they had to do was apologetics. Because of syncretism, a mixing of all these religions, Judaism, emperor worship, and a hodgepodge of cultural philosophies, Christians learned very quickly to formally and actively defend the faith. What was happening in the midst of this persecution what was one thing that is happening on mass in a mass scale? Does anybody know what was happening in a mass scale with the early church? Conversions. People were getting saved like crazy. It was the explosion of the church. Now, with an explosion of all these new converts, what's happening? You got people that are becoming Christians, but they may not have the right beliefs. And so a lot of so persecutions is causing an explosion of the church, but all these Christians. They're not being discipled, and so heresies are popping up. And so these early church fathers had to not only deal with persecution, but heresy. And the big one was Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis. And let me tell you, Gnosticism is kind of fluid. It wasn't like, I'm a Gnostic. It, 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 it fed itself into all different types of belief systems. But let me give you the major tenets of Gnosticism. Number one, only special knowledge kept secret only for the truly spiritual. I've got the key to the Christian life. If you just buy my book and come to my conference, I'll share with you my secret. It has exactly. The spirit of Gnosticism has never died. It's this whole idea that 
the Bible's not clear. The Bible's not plain. You need to have this secret special knowledge to unfold the, the issues of it. And, and one person may have all of that knowledge and you come to him or her and they'll help you unlock that. The other big thing about Gnosticism is it had a negative view of the material world. Matter is evil. What really counts is your soul. So I can go have sex with as many people as I want, go get as drunk as I want, because it really doesn't matter. The physical world doesn't matter. All that matters is my mind or my soul that's floating out there in the ether somewhere. Okay? Gnosticism also denied God as the creator of this world. Now, if you think matter's bad or matter is evil, what do you do with some key tenets of Christianity? What do you do with the incarnation of Christ? They denied the incarnation. They denied the bodily resurrection. And they denied the validity of the Old Testament. And here's what that leads to. If you do not have any concern for the, for the physical world, listen to what Ignatius of Antioch said Gnosticism leads to. This was in 110 A.D. Is that right? Did he not, didn't he not die in 108 I may have got my dates wrong. Yeah, it's probably the wrong date because he would have been dead by then. Um, but he said this. <laughs> they, that is Gnostics, they have no concern for love, none for the widow, the orphan, the afflicted, the prisoner, the hungry, the thirsty. They stay away from the Lord's Supper and prayer. If matters evil, then we don't want to get our hands dirty with the things of this world. So we don't want to meet people's needs and we don't want to live out our Christianity in the real world. Gnosticism. Okay? Marcion. Should be Marcionism, not Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. He was the first person to come up with the canon or the list of books in Scripture in 140. So he's the first person that came up and said, here's what books should be in the Bible. And he didn't include the Old Testament. Okay? He left out much of the Old Testament. He denied any of the miracles of Christ. He considered Matthew, Mark, John, Acts, and most of Paul as inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah, pretty quickly. So you will actually hear people today say that person is a... You may hear people today say that person's a Marcionite. Now, what's a Marcionite today? We talked a little bit about it earlier. I'm going to, like, if I were to call somebody a Mar, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, why is Sean calling that person a Marcionite? Because he'd be in all, like, what I'm saying, I've never called somebody a Marcionite, but if I were to call somebody a Marcionite, here's what I would say. You're a Marcionite because you pick and choose which part of the Bible you like. And you'll throw out the miracles or you'll throw out the parts you don't like. And so you basically come up with your, your accepted part of the Bible, the Jesus Seminar people that go through every year and, cast the different colors to see what Jesus really said or didn't say. So Marcionism is this whole idea that I can pick and choose what part of the Bible I like, and if it, if, if it doesn't make sense to me or I don't like it, I'll just throw it out. Okay, he was deemed a heretic. Now, during this time, there were also some, not only were there martyrs, but there were great teachers. So let me give you the great teachers of that day. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, 130 to 202, um, he was actually, he, he, think about the succession. John the Apostle taught Ignatius. John the Apostle taught Polycarp. Polycarp taught Irenaeus. So he was a pupil of Irenaeus. 
His writings helped define some of the earliest beliefs of Christianity. And his famous book or his famous treatise was called Against Heresies. So he wrote a treatise against all these Gnostic heresies. So he was a good guy. He was actually the first, you would probably say, who was the first good Christian theologian that dealt with heresies? It was Irenaeus. Okay? Maybe you've heard of Tertullian of Carthage. Tertullian, 160-220. He wrote a document called Well, this is not one of my notes. He wrote a document called the Apology. I mean, he did write a document called the Apologies in late second century, saying that Jesus is equal to God. His writings helped clarify the doctrine of the Trinity the way that we understand it. Now, obviously, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but our understanding of that, because there's a lot of heresies about the Trinity back then. Here's the main thing you need to know about Tertullian. He was the first theologian to write in Latin. Not Greek, but Latin. Which means that he can be considered the founder of Western... When we we say Western Christianity, the great schism happened between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so we talk about the Eastern Church today. It's all in Greek. The Western Church, Roman Catholic, it was in Latin. And so he was the first one to write in Latin. And from pretty much up until about... The 16, early 1600s, when things were starting to be written in English, everything in the church was written in Latin. Now, most people did not read Latin or speak Latin. Maybe pig Latin, but not, <laughs> but not Latin. So, okay. Clement of Alexandria, 160 to 215 A.D. He was very influential. Clement was, um, he was more of an um, investigative theologian And he was really, I think he was kind of, I think he was probably more influenced by Greek philosophy than he was Christianity, like Plato and Socrates. And so I think he tried to to figure out, his whole thing was, how do I reconcile Greek philosophy with Christianity? And so sometimes he kind of, and he developed this hermeneutical method called the fourfold allegorical method. Now, I'm not going to get into all that, but basically every passage of scripture has four meanings. The literal, the moral, the literal, the moral, the spiritual, and the future. So like a perfect example, I, I, I know all the things, but like the parable of the, of the um, Good Samaritan. It had like four meanings. And you can go through and each thing was signed in the meaning. So the, the, the Alexandrian school of thought was more allegorical, more influenced by by Greek philosophy. Origen of Alexandria, I don't even think he was a Christian. That's just my opinion. Um, He's considered a church father. Um, He was more of a Neoplatonist, Plato, in his theology than Christian. Some of his stuff is pretty, pretty weird. Okay. And then Cyprian of Carthage, he, he was an interesting one. Um, his big issue was, okay, we're living in an age of persecution. How do you respond to those who denied the faith under persecution and wanted to return to the church? Now, that was his writing. That's a big deal right then. Okay, so you renounced Christ because you didn't want to get fried. 
and you didn't get fried, and now things are good, I want to come back and join the church. He wrote about how does the church think through this process of letting these people back in? Okay. So what was the early church like? Interesting. Let's tell you a little bit about it. The vast majority of Christians in the first three centuries were of the lower class. It spread through the lower class, through slaves, through workers, through just the lower class. The nobility, it didn't really reach. They gathered on the Lord's Day Sunday for worship. So from the very beginning, they, they, they worshiped on Sunday morning. This is interesting. Because of persecution, usually baptism was administered yearly on Easter Sunday and by immersion... The candidates were completely naked, separated men and women, and were given a white robe when they came out of the waters as a sign of their new life in Christ. Now, why were they baptized once a year? They wanted to make sure that they were truly a follower of Christ and not a spy. Because this is the time where you could turn people in. And so they wanted to go through a year-long process of examination to say, you're the real deal, you're not going to turn us in. And so they had like a year-long catechism catechesis process to make sure that these people were legit before they would baptize them. So they have mass baptisms on Easter Sunday. Um, I'm not saying that's something we practice today because we're not in an age of persecution. Um, you can't, I want to get baptized. You can't get baptized till Sunday. I'm sorry, you got to wait five, you know, you got to wait 11 months. Um, and here's another thing that they did. Only those who are baptized could attend the Lord's Supper services. Actually, what they did, if you were not baptized, you can actually not go in the church during the Lord's Supper. You'd have to sit in a separate room. And an elder would go out there and explain to you what was going on in there and then say, listen, you can be a part of that, but you've got to actually, you know, so they would, there was some training going on um, in that as well. The catacombs weren't necessarily for hiding out, but they were having the Lord's Supper down there close to those whom were buried as it connected them with their ancestors. It was just a reminder that these people, you know, died for their faith and, um, this is interesting too. The ancient church knew nothing of revivals or evangelistic services. Church was for worship. The evangelism occurred outside in the market, shops, slave ships, kitchens, and fields. The spread of Christianity was not due to full-time missionaries, but to Christians who were forced to travel as slaves and exiles to work in the mines. They took the message wherever they went. And then in closing here, because we're not going to get to some other... Heresies. Well, this is the first, this is a good place to end. Two significant characteristics of the early church. Charity and chastity. Charity and chastity. That's what they were known for. Now, what do I mean by charity? Eusebius, he was the first historian of the church. He wrote the ecclesiastical history under Constantine. Um, but here's what he said about Christians. And this was... This was the first history of, of, Christ, of Christians being written. They did, then did they show themselves to the heathen in the clearest light. For the Christians were the only people who amid such terrible ills showed their fellow feelings and humanity in their actions. Day by day, some would busy themselves with attending to the dead and burying them, others gathering in one spot, all who were afflicted by hunger throughout the whole city and gave bread to them all. The church was known for their charity in the sense of generosity, love, encouragement, meeting physical needs. Okay? Second thing was chastity. The Christians avoided the public baths, the amphitheaters, the sexual morality in, in the life. As a matter of fact, no church member was permitted to be an actor or a gladiator or teach acting. That was just the way it was during those 
Um, so it's interesting. What the, think about the early church here for a moment. It's not a lot different. Sexual immorality, people not meeting the physical needs of the people around them, persecution, heresies, trying to figure out who we are in the midst of all this, people coming to Christ, not being discipled. How do we define who we are in the midst of all this? So it was probably 300 years of maybe a little bit of chaos when it first started. But think about, if you go back, missiologists and historians will tell you that in no period of Christian history has the church grown exponentially as it did in the first 300 years. But how did it grow? Full-time pastors going around having revivalistic crusades? How did it grow? Persecution and normal people taking the gospel wherever they went in their everyday lives, and it spread. So that's how the gospel spread back then, through everyday people doing it in their everyday lives, coming to church on Sunday for worship, and then going out into the world for the rest of the week to impact people for the lost. 